the social life. It's the Darren Show. The Darren Show. Don't ask if he's single. You already know. Cause it's the Darren Show. A simple name for a simple guy with a simple face. It's the Darren Show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Darren Show. Last week, I finally released Brent Part 2. Uh, not not just to, to please the people that have been constantly asking for it, but also because it was very convenient. Uh, I was in Reno, and um, uh, for those that don't know, I, I live on the East Coast. Reno is on the West Coast, and uh, you know when you're in Reno for a week, and you stay up late, and then you come back, and then you're really, really tired when you're trying to make podcasts with wonderful guests. So I apologize if I'm a little loopy and or tired and or whatever uh because i have a i, I like i said i have a, a wonderful guest with me here uh from australian survivor it's nick ayadanza how you doing nick g'day mate <laughs> i'm trying i'm gonna yeah, I reckon i need to do my most aussie accent i reckon this this podcast is to really celebrate being the first australian on the tarot oh show. that's true yeah we, uh, i wonder if we can form some some mateship over the course of this podcast. That's one word that uh, really triggers me, Taryn. So <laughs> <laughs> that's been, sh- we've struck that from the vernacular in this household. No one's allowed to say that word. I was actually in the school library the other day and like was helping a kid pick a book. And he's like, what about this book? And it was like something about mateship. And I was like, put it back on the shelf and don't touch that one again. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, what was the other thing, like, uh, Nick-like, uh, uh, moves or something? no, Nickish. Nickish, yes. Uh, yeah. yes. <laughs> Nick, Nick was on, uh, you, you might call it the first season of Australian Survivor. You might also yeah, call we, it the third season the of Australian Survivor. Uh, they, they've got weird numbering systems. It's all backwards in Australia. That's, that's the only reason why it's messed up. Everything's backwards. The toilets flush backwards. The Survivor seasons are backwards. It's, yeah, it's, it's crazy. But yes, yeah, Australian Survivor was, uh, the reboot after a very long hiatus. So we, we pretty much consider it season one last year. Yes, um, and uh, had had a uh, an eventful run um, that we will get into. Um, I was we can was call it that. Nick. Yes, Thanks, um, I like the Nickish moves. Uh, so, uh, very excited to be talking to Nick. I was actually uh, I was actually just watching um, the Wolf Creek. Uh, miniseries Ooh. and or TV series. I don't know if you know about Wolf Creek, but apparently it's popular in Australia. So I wonder, yeah, you yep. do? Yeah, it was a movie a few years ago and it's yes. based off like, a, 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 you know, some killings that, that actually happened out in Outback. Um, pretty sure it's Outback South Australia, which is the state where I live. There's a lot of spooky stuff that happens in our state. Apparently Adelaide, which is the capital city of South Australia, and if you're trying to put that on a map, it's like where there's that little bite at the bottom, taken out of Australia at the bottom. Adelaide's nestled right in there. Apparently, Adelaide is like the murder capital of Australia. We have more murders per per capita than than any other place, which is really cool. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> for anyone that likes uh, horror movies and likes Australian horror movies, uh, I, I recommend the Wolf Creek movie. I'm not always a fan of like how the stories turn out or like the characters, but the the main uh, killer guy, Mick Taylor fantastic mm-hmm. he's amazing mm-hmm. he's he's one of the best uh killers in horror movies uh that i think i i've seen he's he's great and i'm not sure about the the tv show but um but the movie the guy who played him uh, used to be on a kids show here called play school 
And, and it was really, really jarring to see him in the cinema like, wait, you used to read me bedtime story. <laughs> well, that's that's part of the charm of the, of, of the guy is that he is kind of charming uh, when, yeah. when they meet him in the outback. And then, uh, yeah. uh-oh, takes out that knife. Um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, I, I am a, a, a very big horror movie fan. I, I don't know if anyone knows that about me. Uh, but uh, do, you, uh, do you like horror movies? Oh, mate. I love my wife and I. We and, and a mate Kyle. We always sit around and watch horror movies. Um, there's just been some really good ones lately. We even like the ch- super cheesy ones. Yes. And um, but like I reckon a good Australian one, if people have heard of it, The Babadook. Ah, I would, yeah. I would hi- highly recommend. That was also filmed here in Adelaide, in my hometown. So Very cool. All right, so we've got some horror. It's it's October still, I think. Um, yeah. <laughs> when this releases. Yep. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes, barely. Uh, what is Halloween? Did we already miss it? I don't even know. In Australia, Halloween, like, never used to be a thing. And I would watch, like, all these, you know, I suckled at the teat of American network television all my life. So, like, I would always want all these, like, Americanisms, just kind of like all these things. But And Halloween was one of them. And it just was never a thing in Australia. And then I would say in the last three years, everyone has gone completely Halloween obsessed here. There is, like, the stuff outside the houses. There's the costumes, the pumpkins. And it's just like in three years, we've become America, and it's awesome. It's awesome. I love it. That sounds awesome. Yeah. uh, So apparently, this podcast will be dropping uh, October 31st, Halloween in the United States of America. uh, Perfect perfect opening, uh, unintentional, but. um, That was. No, we planned that, Taryn, man. Come on. All right, so uh, Nick, I, I want to uh, you know get to know you a little better. Um, you, uh, you 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 talked to me a little bit about your your parents uh, before we uh, started recording and how they were migrants to Australia. Can you tell me a, bit, a little bit about that? Yeah, so I just feel like it's a really um, important part of my story that I, I come from this like migrant Italian background, and you know there are a lot of Italian people in America, and, and I'm not sure if many people know, but in Australia we have a huge population of Italian migrants. So like my dad uh, was born in the south of Italy and he uh, migrated to Adelaide when he was 16 years old. So he was, he was you know, he was grown, but uh, he was still a teenager. And he came over, took like a, a couple of months journey on a, on a ship with my grandmother and, you know, just started this new life in Australia. And when I was younger, that never really kind of like made too much of an impact on me. But now that I've gotten older and, you know, I've started, you know, I've got my, my own wife and my own house and I just, I always think about it now and I always think about how those those experiences have kind of changed me and made me think I come from pretty brave stock to to kind of uproot everything and, and try your hand at a, at a world you know nothing about. So my grandfather, we call him Anunnu, my Anunnu, he... um moved he left Italy because in the south of Italy there really wasn't much work and and he heard that in Australia there was you know opportunities the government was calling for workers around this time so this would have been in the 50s and he left my dad when he was like you know a, a couple of years old and moved to the other side of the world to and he traveled all through Australia like cutting cane and tomatoes and all these things um and my dad and my grandmother didn't see my grandfather for you know over a decade uh, he just disappeared to the other side of the world and, you know, they would write letters every week. But I just, you know, I went out on an island for two months with no contact from my <laughs> my my partner and I thought I was, uh, uh, my world was ending. So I really, I always think about this and think, you know, that's so brave. And 
I just feel like it's a really big part of my family's story that they, they kind of, this isn't their home, but they quickly made it their home. And my mother also comes from a migrant family. Uh, her um, parents and her um, older siblings were born in Italy and then they made the journey over and then my mum my was born here. So I come from like, I feel like growing up, I had my foot in kind of two worlds because, you know, it's a traditional Italian family, but I was a traditional Australian kid. And I'm sure you've got listeners out there who understand this experience of being kind of like a, a first generation Italian Australian. And, and sometimes there being like real overlap and sometimes being a disconnect as to kind of like who you are culturally, which I found, I found, I just think it's really, it's a, it's really, um, helped me grow because I like look back now and I think about all these things that we used to di- to do as like a family. Like we used to, you know, make the soap in the backyard. We used to make, you know, wine. We would crush grapes and make wine, you know, make the, the, the t- tomato sauce and, and, you know, we would, you know, make sausages and like butcher the pig and, and you know, all these things that my friends at school were definitely not doing. I remember standing up at show and tell one day and saying, you know, oh, this weekend we're going to butcher the pig where we, in our garage, we're going to kill a pig and we're going to boil down its lard and we're going to make sausages out of its intestines. And, like, my entire class was horrified, like, absolutely horrified. Like, what kind of world do you live in? And, you know, they're eating Vegemite sandwiches and, and, and I so badly wanted to just be an Australian kid and... uh but I just, I wasn't, I had this kind of like whole other life that just, yeah, it's really interesting. And I'm sure there's plenty of other migrants out there, the migrant children who can understand that. Yeah. It's, it's funny because you're talking about two cultures that like neither of which I'm a part of. So it's like, uh, the norm was Australian culture, which was yeah. is even then like not normal to me hearing about it. Like, yeah. Vegemite? <laughs> like what? Uh, <laughs> um, do you feel like, do you feel like that really sort of set you apart from your, your peers and sort of, uh, made you feel like you were a little separate from them? It's funny, like, I feel like, you know, I can blend in, like, I do look different, but I can blend in quite easily compared to, you know, other people from other cultures. But there's always this kind of like, where's he from kind of thing. You know, I feel like there's always been that in my life. And it's, I've never been experienced like racism or anything like that. Like the people I've grown up with are absolutely lovely. And Italian culture is a big part of Australian culture. But there's always that kind of feeling that I'm, I'm uh, growing up, especially when I was a little kid, that I wasn't the same as everyone else. And I was lucky that I eventually kind of found like a really good group of friends who were both Italian and Asian and Australian and, and English. And, um, and it, it doesn't matter when you get older, but there was definitely that feeling. And it's funny, I, a lot of people after my time on Survivor, uh, you know, you know, the first season of Survivor was condemned in the media of, you know, oh, it's so white. There's 24 contestants and we've only got one of, you know, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander descent and we have, you know, that's it. Um, and in reality, there was myself and Brooke, uh, who were kind of like, you know, Brooke was half Sri Lankan and I'm, I'm Italian. But, uh, when I'm the most ethnic person, the third most <laughs> ethnic person on a, on a cast of Survivor, I felt, you know, that's pretty strange. And I felt like I kind of stood out a little bit. And a lot of people were saying that, you know, I was treated differently just because of my race. And, and I refute that. Like, I definitely don't think that's the case that I feel like no one treated me any differently on the Island. I'm just an Italian kid. That's really not that special, 
But there is always that feeling in the back of your head, like I'm growing this really big, thick, bushy beard. <laughs> and um, uh, yeah, I don't know. I just feel like it, it's definitely a part of my life, but in like 99% of the ways, it's like, it's all good. So it's just interesting. It's really interesting that that feeling of being in the middle of two worlds. Is is race uh, a big issue in Australia, sort of in the same way that it, that it has been uh, in the US? It's funny, like, I, you know, I don't want to get too far into it, but yeah, you know, yeah. there are definitely, there are definitely, you know, ra- racial divisions here in Australia. We've got a, a huge issue with the way that people treat our first Australians, our, you know, the our Aboriginal people and the, what basically happened to them when white people came. And, and uh, that's, that's an ongoing issue that definitely kind of like ha- has been some, a bone of contention in politics and in, and especially, um, we've had a lot, a huge influx of migration. So, you know, in the fifties and sixties, when my dad came over and my parents, my mum's family, it was a lot of, um, you know, uh, Mediterraneans, Southern Europeans. And then in the seventies, it became, you know, a lot of Asians. And then in the year 2000s, you know, a lot of people from the Middle East and Sudan. And it definitely has changed the fabric of cult, of Australian culture in a good way. But, uh, yeah, it's just like America. There's, you, you put people together, they're not going to get along, are they? Yeah. Well, uh, so did, do you feel like the, the Italian heritage uh, and, and feeling like you were attached to that culture, did it have an effect on you growing up? Did that make you feel like you were growing up differently than, than the other kids and that you sort of were getting a different experience and that sort of informed your personality? Well, I'll give you an example. So, you know, we grew up in a house where we used to make our own wine. And, you know, we would do that, you know, once a year and you kind of crush the grapes in the, not with your feet. It's not like, you know, I love Lucy or anything like that. But, you know, like in a big vat and, you know, my grandparents lived across the road. It was very traditional. And, and you know, I would go over after school and kind of help decant the wine and all this stuff. Um, and then at dinner, there would just always be this wine that we made. And because it was always around, I was never that interested in drinking it. And, you know, from a young age, maybe I would have like a bit of wine mixed with lemonade kind of thing. Um, so to me, alcohol was never a thing. And then when I turned 16 and, you know, you start going to parties and things like that. And I had, like I said, a lot of Australian friends you go to parties and there, everyone is just like absolutely plastered, like completely destroyed, so drunk, like, say, oh yeah, I stole this from my parents and all this stuff. And I was just like, what do you mean? Like it had never registered in my mind that like alcohol was this thing to be abused because it was never special in our house. It was just a part of it. So that was one of the times where I was like, well, I have had a different experience to everyone else. And, you know, my mates are rolling around with their backpacks with the, you know, you know, beers that they've stuck, you know, shoved in. And, and I was just like, what do you mean? Like, yeah, I found that was one of the, you know, obviously then I got on board and I was just <laughs> loving life. But, but yeah, that's just an example of when I was just like, hmm, maybe I did kind of grow up different to everyone else. Yeah, I, I, I'm always curious about like uh, about that because we, you know, having been to to Europe at least, uh, I, there is a very different attitude toward alcohol in the culture, but it sort of leads to the same place. Uh, so I don't yes. know if it makes yeah. that much of a difference ultimately. It doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't. It it really doesn't. It's just in that beginning bit that kind of like in in many ways culture shock, like of like, wow, this is what we do. Like you know, for example, I'll give you another example, like. A friend of mine's father passed away, an Australian uh, dad, when I was really young and I was at school. And, and um, I went to the funeral and the funeral was, you know, in, in a like a little cathedral kind of thing. And then afterwards, for the wake, everyone just goes down to the pub and just gets absolutely poleaxed. Like, that's just tradition. Like, we're in Australia, when someone dies, you just go to the pub, you celebrate their life, there's music, you drink, blah, blah, blah. And that is definitely not 
what happened when I was growing up. It was, you know, someone passed away. The family went into mourning. <laughs> you know, the grandmother wore black. If her husband had died, he wore black for like, you know, six months. And you kind of went to people's houses and you kind of sat around and you didn't talk. And it, and it was just, yeah, it, you know, these are very highly traditional things. And that's not exactly how my immediate family, um, you know, exists. But going to extended family funerals, it was just a really interesting uh, juxtaposition there that like one is all about like yes let's use it as a chance to get pissed and celebrate whereas everyone's like no, no now we don't talk and we celebrate in our own heads <laughs> <laughs> so so growing up in australia uh you know i don't want to ask too broad a question but uh was there you know having having talked to plenty of of people you know from america having experienced lots of american culture is there is there like are there some key differences that you would say that you'd point to like uh like this is something that's weird about growing up in australia Hmm. Weird about growing up in Australia. I, I definitely think, you know, you, you, everyone has these stereotypes and every, every, I've traveled like quite a lot. I've been lucky enough to travel and everyone, when they initially find out you're from Australia, they make the same jokes like, Oh, like, do you, do you ride a kangaroo to school and stuff like this? And you're like, no, that doesn't happen. But like, there are kangaroos. Like, I <laughs> like when you actually think about it, like there are kangaroos around, like, you know, they'll be in the parklands and stuff like that. So it's, while I'm, it's not super stereotypical, there are actually things that you'd be like, yeah, okay, that's exactly how I imagined. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, but you know, just like America, like sporting culture is, is huge. It's definitely not to the kind of professional, you know, uh, uh, extent that it is in, um, in America with like, you know, college football and you know, things like that. But, you know, Australia runs around cricket and football. So football is like Australian rules football. Uh, Australian rules football is kind of like um, rugby, but but not really. It's, it, you know, there's a red ball and you kick it around and there's the big sticks at the end and it's very physical. Like, you know, there's no padding like you soft Americans with, <laughs> with all your, your padding and gridiron. Like, uh, and it's, it's yeah, it's, a, it's pretty much like, Australian culture revolves around AFL. And um, if anyone's into sport in America and they've never heard of it, I'd, I'd recommend, you know, having a bit of a YouTube it's, yeah, and having, having a bit of a look. It's a, it's a pretty epic game, but life revolves around that. And it revolves around, you know, cricket in the summer. It revolves around going to the beach. I, like I said before, like I always wanted to live this kind of like stereotypical American life. Like I wanted to have a house with an attic you know, and where you can walk into it. There's things like that don't really exist in Australia. Um, you know, because Australia is so young, we have houses that aren't that old. And, um, you know, I wanted to have an attic and I wanted to, you know, celebrate Halloween and Thanksgiving. And I wanted Christmas where you wear the ugly sweaters and there's snow outside. It does not snow, especially where I'm from. I'm living in Adelaide, which is the driest city in the driest state in the driest continent in the world. And it's just like hot. So our Christmas is like, is summer. So Christmas in Australia is, is, you know, you go down to the beach, you play beach cricket, you drink beers, you have prawns, like shrimp. Um, and you just kind of like, it's just complete summer. There's, and then, but then all that, you know, we give each other Christmas cards and there's like Christmas trees with snow, <laughs> snow on them and stuff like that. So yes, Aussie Christmas is very different to what, you know, American television told me I should be expecting. And, and that was a bit of a disappointment growing up. Yeah. Was there, was there something in particular, like a, a certain TV show or a certain movie that you really latched onto the, like, as far as like American culture went? 
Okay, so my sisters and I used to watch Home Alone like <laughs> over and over again. And, you know, those big, beautiful American houses and, you know, all the snow and the decorations. And here we are like fanning ourselves, like drinking, it, you know, eating an icy pole, like a little, you know, like <laughs> just dying, wishing that we could have like, you know, this kind of Christmas. But I'm a huge Simpsons fan and I, I've... I seriously was like obsessed and still am like obsessed with the Simpsons and just used to like watch it over and over again. And Simpsons is just like pretty much American culture on steroids. Like it's just so many references that I think maybe American people take for granted that other people wouldn't understand. Mm. And I, cause I was just so interested, I would just always be researching like, Oh, what is this? What is that? And I just learned so much about America and so much about life really through the Simpsons. But yeah. you know, one of the, one of the things we, you know, you mentioned the M word mateship before. Um, I think one of the things is that, you know, Australians pride themselves on being, you know, this whole idea of mateship and the fair go that, you know, you can come to Australia and everyone can get a fair go. Um, and that, you know, the, the quintessential Australian character is the, the, the larrikin, like a larrikin. I'm not sure if you guys even use that word, but nah. it's just kind of like, like a jokester, someone who doesn't take life too seriously. And, and while there are definitely elements of that still in Australian culture, um, I feel like in many ways that's a bit of an antiquated ideal, especially when you <laughs> go on Survivor. <laughs> and, um, and you know, you have people kind of like saying, oh, you know, mateship's really important and stuff like that, but don't really follow through with it because when I don't think that's such a big thing about Australia anymore. I think we've kind of lost that in a way. So, so you would you say, and, and maybe you don't know the answer to this, but would you say mate, mateship is sort of the equivalent to like uh, the bros in the US? Uh, no, because I think bros in, in the US like have a kind of, everyone kind of views them in like a bit of a douchey way. Am I correct? Well, I, I think I think there was a period of time where like like the bro culture was cool and then uh like you know the culture turned right. and and then everyone was like oh that's so lame uh so maybe maybe it's a, a similar thing maybe mateship will uh will die off eventually i feel like the, the 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 closest comparison from watching like survivor and stuff like that that i can think of of mateship in america is this you know like with jt you know the good old boy you know mm -hmm. and like uh, you know, when people were saying, you know, like Russell, like, oh, he's from before everyone knew who Russell was. Like, oh, he's just like a good old guy from the South, you know, yeah. those Southern values. To me, that's the closest one for one comparison about what Australian mateship is. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, you know, sporting culture is like something that like is huge in Australia. And like I alluded to before, I'm someone, and I think many of your listeners may um, uh, sympathize with, as I'm someone who was never like overtly into sport. Like I enjoy sport. I played it when I was little, but it's never been something that's just made up like the fabric of my being. And I've got a lot of friends who sport is their life. And I now teach at an all boys school, <laughs> high school. And sport is their life. Like it's their first reference point for anything. Like, you know, today guys, we're going to write it. You know, we, we're starting to write our stories. Oh, can it be about football? Like, it's like, okay, no, you know, so, but you know, that just was never part of my repertoire. And I feel like that's kind of, you'd speak about before, like, you know, did you feel like um, being Italian, you know, having Italian descent made you different? I feel like the one thing, consistently in my life that's made me different to the people around me in Australia and in my friends is I haven't been obsessed about sport. <laughs> I don't know if that's something that you can relate to Taryn or like oh, you yeah. know, if your listeners can relate to, but 
I just, yeah, it was, I was always the kid who was picked last. I was like super skinny. I was super tall and super skinny for my age when I was young. And I just had very little coordination and I just was, I was like, you know, it sounds like fake, but literally there was the kid who ate glue. He was chosen before me like in, <laughs> in, in PE. Like it sounds like something out of like a cartoon, but like, yeah. And it just, if I remember when I was in like year seven, so I think that's, what's the translation? You guys use the year seven systems kind of, you call it like um, elementary school, like yeah. the last year of elementary school or something like that? Uh, yeah, I mean, we do like kindergarten, and then we do first through eighth grade. Um, okay. And those, oh, so, those are uh, eight grade, so yeah. So we call it year seven. So in seventh grade, um, you know, my school, and it was, again, it was like an all-boys Catholic school, um, did like a, um indoor soccer tournament. And the, the teams were chosen at random. And the first two people picked were these like, what one someone who's like one of my best friends now, um, him and another guy was like super sporty. They were picked on the team and it was teams of four. And there was another guy who was, you know, entry level average, whatever. And then my name got drawn for the team and just like the groan on their faces. <laughs> like, and it just like, you know, I, I had come at this point, I was completely used to, you know, people discounting me because of my physical ability. Um, but I just will never forget the groan that they, they emitted when I was put on their team. And that's like whenever I, I make groups for, you know, tasks in English at, at school as a teacher, if there's anyone who like even groans when I put someone on them, they like, I come down on them like, you know, like all hell because it can really stick with you that like people don't want you to be a part of their team. And hey, go on Survivor, that happens again. Like you get voted <laughs> out, people re- reject you from a team. Like it's really not a good feeling. Um, but I just felt like it was just something that always set me apart. And if my friends were always hanging out, they would want to watch football or, or you know, like we'd go play cricket. And I always, I always made sure I participated. That was the thing that like, it didn't interest me and I was shit at it. Sorry, I was bad at it. And um, it would often kind of like lead to like, you know, me feeling pretty upset when I was, you know, um, made fun of whatever. But I made sure that I always kind of pushed through and always participated because to me, it's just like anything. And I swear I tell my students that like everything you do is like a muscle that you need to work out. And I was either going to be working out my ability to play and get better or I was going to be working out my resilience of being treated differently for not being better. And I felt like even at a young age, I was having this thought process and going, it's a win-win either way. Like I'm either going to get better. I'm going to learn to deal with people not liking me for my ability. And I feel like that's something that really helped me on survivor. Just like that resilience to just kind of keep going back when people were not interested in working with you. (laughs) Yeah, you, you might say that that uh, that happened on survival. Yeah, you might, you might. Yeah. Um, so do do you like? I think you know. I talked to to Dom from the Dom and Colin podcast uh, a couple episodes ago, and we kind of talked about how we sort of found refuge on the internet. Like we found like these internet communities that we found like people who had similar interests uh, to us. And like, we, uh, you know, it could have like conversations with people. Um, and, and so like, for me, I never felt the need to 
like uh you know immerse myself in like the, the, the sports groups or like whatever like i was fun playing sports but talking yeah. about sports i was like oh my god this is so boring um yeah and so <laughs> uh so i i felt very comfortable like uh you know turning to the internet and and going and, yeah. and doing my own thing did do you feel like uh did you f- find a similar thing that you you know f- found something outside of sports or did you really just try to like uh ingratiate yourself into the sports world uh, no, I didn't like, you know, like I would always participate if I was asked, but I would never kind of seek it out. So like I did kind of, I, I never felt bad bringing up my interests because it was like, all right, we've done your thing. Now it's time to do my thing. So, you know, I, I, I loved reading, you know, when I was younger, I actually taught myself how to read and I still don't know how I did that. I wish I had a camera set up on me when I did that <laughs> over those, all those uh, moons ago. So I could actually see how I did that. But I loved reading, you know, I used to go out in the yard and just like play like, I was a huge like fan of like Buffy the Vampire Slayer and like Power Rangers <laughs> and, you know, all these things where like people were fighting and I would go out in my backyard, this like weird little kid and just like, you know, pretend karate fight these people. And like my dad, like, you know, would always like cater to my interests. And he made me like a little, like a little wooden sword and like a little vampire stake actually. And like, I would like run around the yard and be like, yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> you know, so I, I loved that. I loved Lego, um, or Lego as you say, um, uh, but I, yeah, I definitely, I didn't find refuge in the internet. Um, I definitely just kind of like pursued my own interests unashamedly as well. Like I was never ashamed of my interests. And even to this day, like I, you know, I tweet out like, oh, how good is, you know, the real housewives, whatever. <laughs> and people are like, as if you watch that show or are happy to admit it. I'm like, I don't give, I don't give a crap. I'm happy to admit. I, I love like, you know, my interests are my interests. And eventually I will find people who like my interests and, and I feel that I have over the years. And I think the biggest thing was, was finding this online survivor community. And we can get to that later when we talk about survivor, but, um, I, that wasn't until, you know, I was like, I, I would say a young, I was probably an adult when, when I found that, but, um, but yeah, like I, I never kind of, like I said, I never kind of shied away from being involved. And do you know what? And this sounds so weird. And I actually, this was actually an, a line in the, the premiere of Australian survivor that, Every single so Survivor started when I was twelve um, in two thousand one, and, and many people started watching from the beginning, and I was instantly hooked. And I knew, I knew that one day I didn't know that I would one day be on it, but I knew that if I one day got the chance to be on Survivor, I could prove to people that all those things they thought about me about being different physically would eventually strip away. I saw Survivor as my Olympics that I had been training for for 15 years that, look, I don't know how to play football properly. Like I can kick, I know how to play, I enjoy it, but like I'm not the best. I'm not, I wouldn't even say I'm good, right? But I knew that if I got to play Survivor, somehow this physical ability would just kick in because it would be something that I truly cared about. And it's so hard to explain, and I've tried to explain this to a bunch of people since I've been back or even out there on the island, that... It just, to me, was like the time when I was finally going to shine. Now, we've all, you know, we haven't all seen it, but, you know, you've seen the season. There were many things that I made wrong, did wrong strategically and socially, but the one area where I never faltered, ever, was physically. I went out there and I was in my audition saying, I am so bad at sports, I'm going to, you know, probably get voted off first because everyone's going to, but strategically, I've got this game on lock. You know, socially, I can talk to anyone. 
you know, blah, blah, blah. I went out there and strategically I made some really, really good moves, but I made some really, really, really bad moves. And socially, I left with some friends, but I also left with some people that really didn't like having me around. But the one thing that I never once faltered in was my physical. And it just was such an eye-opening experience for me. Um, I was part of a tribe that won like nearly every challenge. In the individual portion of the game, I didn't do as well. I had three individual immunities and like I never won, but like I put in a good show. But I actually worked out in Jury Villa because I was there for a very, very long time. Um, I actually worked out some stats that of everyone in the game, I had the highest winning percentage in the tribal portion of the game. No one in the game won as many individual, so no one in the game won as many tribal immunities as myself. And that is just craziness. And it sounds like I'm bragging, but you know what? I am because I went 26, 27 years of everyone thinking that I don't even know how to hold a football or, you know, what's the, you know, what is a cricket bat? And then I went out there and I was able to like succeed. And it was just this huge shift for me in my confidence. And I was able to say, do you know what? I was right. I was able to, this was my Olympics and I didn't walk away with a prize and I made strategic blunders. But the one thing that kept me in was the one thing I never thought that would. And, you know, after the first swap, I think it was day 18, you know, it was either myself or my ally Tegan. And sorry if this is spoilers, skip ahead for 30 seconds if you haven't watched the episode and you really want to. Um, it was between Tegan and myself. And the one thing that kept me in the game was that I was a physical asset for my tribe. And when I came home and told my family, I, obviously I didn't tell them all everything. I, I tried to keep things a surprise. But one thing I said on that first day when we were sitting around my kitchen table and I'd just been back was, you guys will never believe it, but I was kept in the game one day because of my physical ability. And they all pissed themselves <laughs> laughing. No one believed me. They were like, yeah, sure, Nick. I'm like, no, it's true. I had to hold up this thing and I did it for like so long. And they were like, okay, we'll see. Like, <laughs> we'll see what happens in the edit. So I just found that really interesting that like sporting was just this thing that was just, yeah. Anyway, I've said it, but you, you get the idea. No, yeah, it, it was funny because you said uh, like you worked out at Ponderosa and I was like, oh, you were like working out? I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. I was working out the statistics of why yeah. I was good physically. Uh, <laughs> exactly why they laughed about your physical. Ex exactly. Do you know what? Do you want to hear something funny? So like I was the first member of the jury, obviously, and I was there for a really long time and I was like, excellent we've been exerting ourselves physically for so long i'm gonna spend two three weeks whatever it is sitting here by the pool drinking margaritas eating fries and not feeling bad about it because when in your life can you just like absolutely go to town when you've been starving for 37 days yeah anyway the next person who joins me is like a fitness fanatic <laughs> and then everyone after that wants to be fit and work out that they were running like morning circuits with skipping <laughs> ropes and it's like are you guys insane? We have just been pushing our body to the brink of exhaustion. And I would just sit there in my like lounge chair, just like <laughs> sipping on like these like peanut butter milkshakes and everyone's like working up a sweat around me. And I, I think I joined in once or twice, but like for the other 20 days, I was like, mate, you can get stuffed. I'm sitting here with a milkshake. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it, it sounds like, uh, like it was a very like, cathartic experience for you being able to finally uh, like prove your athletic ability. Um, it's, it seems like it's something that, that really followed you uh, all the way to Survivor. Um, do you feel like it's it, it, like a, a burden has been lifted off of your back? 
Yes, that's so. People say, you know, what 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 is the legacy of Survivor for you? Because people say, come out and say, oh, it's changed my life forever, and it's like it, it, eventually you go back to who you are. I think Rob said that before. But the one thing that it's done, it's done two things for me. The one thing is, I always wanted to be on Survivor. I never thought I would get the chance because you know Australian Australia just didn't do it. And it was this number one bucket list item that would forever remain unticked. And because I knew that I would never get to do that. I felt like it made me give up on a lot of other things. It was like, yeah, well, well, I can strive and do all these other things. Like I want to write a novel and all this stuff. But what's the point? Like I'm never going to get my the one thing I want to do in life. And the fact that I got to do that has just changed my perspective. First of all, it's lifted this burden off my shoulder that like this thing that I'll never get to do. It's made me lighter and it's made me think, do you know what? Now I can actually get to those smaller goals that I want to achieve. So it did that. And the other thing was that when people say, you know, what was your proudest moment? It was never that I was like one of the bigger characters. It was never that I was, you know, you know, made strategic moves. It was that I think of a challenge. There was a challenge on day uh, 28 or something like that. We were still in the two tribe portion of the game and my tribe had been winning a lot, like dominating. But we got, it was just before the merge and there was a challenge and it was, it hasn't been an American survivor, I don't think, where one person had to run out to a barge, untie a series of ropes pull in a huge boat with the other tribe in it who are trying to paddle away, pull the boat in, swim back to shore with the puzzle pieces, and then put a puzzle together. And it was a huge high-stakes challenge because I said it was for a huge immun- it was immunity and a huge um, reward in the game. And immediately, and I went to, went to the challenge that day saying, guys, I'm not feeling well, so like, you know, we have enough people. It, uh, if someone else can do it, I'm going to sit out this one. But when we got there, we realized that we needed someone who could do a puzzle and that that knocked out half of the tribe. And we needed someone who could have the physical ability to do this huge physical feat and that knocked out the other half. I was the Venn diagram in the middle of the tribe that could actually do both of those things and I was stressing out. But the fact that I did it, I blitzed it, I won, that that moment is my most proudest moment in the game. And if you had said to me that a proudest moment would be in a challenge, like I don't even like the challenges, like well, <laughs> yeah. as a viewer, that that I always think of that that challenge, that moment, that day where I came through for not only my brain but also my body. So yeah, so those are the two things Survivor did for me. But. Yeah, well, it, were your uh, you know you you talked a, a bit about your parents uh, to start. Were they? Uh, and they, they, uh, you know, you, you said your family, uh, you know, laughed at you when you said that you did well physically. Um, were they, were they, uh, like supportive of this, this like non-physical idea of yourself where, uh, you didn't want to be involved in sports or did they sort yeah. of have this idea that like, oh, maybe you should be trying it more. Um, so I, I had the, you know, my, my mom's passed away and we'll get to that in a second, but you know, growing up, I had the most supportive parents in the world, like, my dad, when he found out that he was having, when he found out that he had a boy because he had two older, two daughters, he was so excited because he loves soccer. He loves Formula One. He likes bike racing, all these things. And he was so excited to share that with someone. And then I arrived. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I feel like, I, I do feel like in my early years, I may have disappointed him a little bit in that I never was interested in going to the soccer with him. And I, and I did, but I was never interested in it. Um, but he never let that disappointment show. He never cared. You know, he never made me feel like in, inferior for not liking that stuff. 
but he always was willing to help me try it out to see if I liked it. And he helped me try out a lot of things like, you know, speed reading, all these things. He tried, it wasn't just trying to get me into sports, but he took me to the little athletics when I was younger. You know, I used to play, I played Aussie rules football for three years as a kid. You know, I played badminton, you know, I tried these things and he always would encourage me to try it. And if I didn't like it, that was it. He never pushed me. My mum is also a huge sport. She loves cricket and football. Um, and she, um, yeah, they, they would come and watch me when I was like playing peewee um, sport, but like they knew that I wasn't interested and that was that. So they bought me books. They, you know, let me do the things that I liked to do, you know, and, and I was, they were very supportive. So yeah, they were okay with it. And I think that's a, a, a something that I've learned as a teacher that you have to just let your stu- your kids, your students do what they want to do in a way. You have to cater to their interests. And that's something that will definitely help me as a parent. So I'm eternally grateful to my parents for that. Yeah, I mean, that, that sounds great. Um, were you like a close-knit family with you and your sisters? Yeah, like it's actually kind of weird how close my family are. <laughs> like we, we, you know, my sisters are very similar to me. Um, and we kind of, I just, I look back on my family time as a young uh, you know there was a huge upheaval like I said with my we can talk about that but but before this huge upheaval in my life like we were just like super close and we were all very and we still are we just kind of lived in each other's pockets and um and that's kind of the way I liked it (laughs) yeah yeah well tell me about this upheaval okay so this was like a big part of my um you know this was on, on featured on the show so some people may may know this story so when I was, it was my first day of year 12, so my first day of my senior year of school, and I was, you know, my mom had always kind of really been supportive of my academics, and I was, you know, I was a really good student, and, um, you know, because she didn't get to have the opportunities that I had academically, and she always wanted me to succeed, and, um, you know, you know, you know, if you want to do this, you do this, I'll be here to help you, all this stuff, and we were so excited that we were about to start this journey together of our senior year, and I remember coming back from my first day of year 12, and we got this really bad news, and that was that my mum had breast cancer, and it was just like, obviously, this is like a huge moment in any family's life, but it was just so symbolic for me that it happened on the day that we were about to go on this journey together, and it just kind of changed everything. It it really did alter the course of my life from that one day. I, I was not the same person as I was before. And I think that I, this whole thing has made me so much, so a much better person than what happened. So what was interesting about that day is that like my mum promised me that it would not impact me in too negative a fashion and that we would together get through my final year. She would help me succeed in my grades. And she did. And we had... You know, my mum was sick for a really, really long time, for years. She battled breast cancer that spread to her lymph nodes, it spread to her, all her internal organs, spread to her bones. And it was a really difficult time, especially when you're going through those kind of like super formative years. You're on the cusp of adulthood. You're trying to figure out, you know, where you want to go in life. And we fought for for years. So we got the diagnosis in 2005 and mum didn't pass away until 2010. And that's five years of just this constant battling, watching someone deteriorate. But she did promise that she would be there for all these kind of key moments in my life. And what's kind of sucks is that she, she didn't get the chance. So she wanted so badly to see me graduate. And on the day of my graduation, she had like a really serious turn and had to be in the hospital. So she didn't actually get to see that. And just things like that, I just think are really shitty, really, really shitty and so hard to process, but they've made me so much stronger and they made me realize that the time that we had together 
would be special. And I say this all the time to people. I say, like, I'm glad my mum got sick. And that sounds so messed up, Taryn. Like, that's a really weird thing to say. But I'm, I know so many people who one day they get the phone call and their loved one's gone. And I'm sure people can relate to that. With no warning, no prep, no time to even mention how much that person means to them. We were given a timeline. Now, the timeline changed less and more all the time. But we knew that this would eventually take my mum. And we were able to plan accordingly. We were able to soak up every last minute that we had together. We were able to plan for the future. And while we didn't, you know, we weren't, we never spoke about her mortality too often, we definitely were able to alter our way of thinking. Now, if that meant I would go out less with friends and spend time with my family, or if it meant that I would kind of like pay extra close attention when, you know, if she was making dinner of like how she made my favorite meal, just these little things start to shift in your brain. And I'm really glad that I had that opportunity because I am such a different person because of those five years of my life. How did you learn to to cope with that, especially, you know, at at such a a young age? Uh, As you mentioned, like, you know, your formative years, you're about to finish school. Um, You know, it's touching, like hearing you talk about like the benefits of of knowing in advance. But how do you how do you handle that knowledge? Um, Yeah, it's really tricky. I'm a really positive person. And and I always wanted to look at it in a positive way, even when mum wasn't. Um, and, And she was she always fought really hard. But it was just it was just I kept telling myself that one day you're not going to have her in front of you and you need to be able to draw upon like an entire well of memories to sustain you through your life. Like, you know, in those first first months, like I, we would question, my sisters and I would question like, well, is she going to be around by the end of the year? Will she be here to see me, you know, get married? Will she ever see my children? Um, and if she was a dressmaker, and she was known in Adelaide as like one of the premier bridal dressmakers. So she was she used to um, make wedding dresses for, for everyone in Adelaide and formal wear and things like that. And, you know, my sisters were like, well, you know, am I going to get, is she going to be able to do this for me? Like, will, will I get this thing that I've always dreamed about, my mum making my wedding dress? And, and, you know, we just kind of said, no, we can't think about that. We have to think about like, hey, like, look at this moment. Like, remember like, the, the look of her smile and, and like the feeling of her hug and like the way she would tell a story. So it was literally just, I, at that point I became like a collector and I just collected so many memories and it really did help. It helped so much, Uh, but it was a tricky time. Like it was a really tricky time. I think what was tricky about it is because there's so much uncertainty, you know, you go through a round of chemo and then you think, you know, you're waiting for results and then they're not good. And they say, that's fine. We can try this next thing. And then you're positive, you're positive again. And then you get your results. And then you're, then you're not positive. Then in, they say, it's fine. We can try the next thing. And I remember being at work, like my family owned a, um, my extended family owned an Italian like continental deli that I worked at during this time. And I remember one day getting on the phone, a friend of mine, she rang me and I was just outside the back of the shop. And I just remember breaking down and saying like, one day the things are going to run out. Like the next step will run out. And well, there are only so many steps on a ladder until you fall off the other end. And, and that I just really struggled with the fact that there would be an end point. And the hard part was going on this like roller coaster of getting your hopes up and then them kind of being dashed and stuff. I think the other hard part was 
seeing the effect that it was having on my mum. Like she was mentally always very strong. She never complained. I think I can think of one time when she like like even complained in five years. And the hard part was that she had to stop stop doing the things that she was doing. Like like I said before, she um loves sport. Um, do you guys know what netball is? Yes, that's a thing in America, no? Uh, is it like a, an offshoot of basketball or something? Yeah, 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 yeah. Really, it's like the number one most participated sport in Australia, especially for young women. My mum was obsessed with netball. She used to she went to these like Masters games in Sydney and played netball and. Um, and she used to coach netball, but and she used to play every week. So when she got sick, you know, if she broke a bone, then that would, you know, be really bad for her because there was cancer in her bones. So she had to quit netball, and that was really hard. And then she had to quit her job. Like, she used to work at a, a nursing home as a receptionist. She had to quit her job because she didn't have the energy to go. And eventually she had to kind of stop dressmaking as well, which she was, which was like the most important thing in her life apart from her family. Our whole lives revolved around her dressmaking. We had like, she had a classroom where she used to teach dressmaking. She had a little room at the back where she used to sew with my auntie and my grandmother. And like she eventually kind of like all these things about her life, like she had to just kind of stop doing. And that was really tricky because I know how much teaching means to me. And if you said to me, Taryn, tomorrow, look, if for your health, you, you can't be exposed. And I, I've known people like, you know, you can't be exposed to all those germs of just being interacting with that many people. You can't go to school. That would be really, really tricky for me. And that was difficult. That was really, really tricky to see someone just kind of like slowly walking this path towards like, eventually I'm just going to have to stop doing everything. And that was hard. Did, did you feel like you had to like be strong for her? Oh, like. Definitely. Like, my family were just, like, incredible. Like, my dad was so strong. My sisters and I, like, my extended family, all my friends, my uni friends, my work colleague, like, everyone was just, like, so supportive. And in moments like that, you again, this is another reason why I'm so glad that my mum got sick because I never would have known how much those people were there for me had something cataclysmic like this not happened. And that was really nice. But I think... Everything really changed. So that was so we got the diagnosis in 2005, and she passed away in February of 2010. Um, but on New Year's Eve of 2009, so going into her final few months, we knew that mum was getting sicker and sicker. And at this point, she we we were told that she still had like another year, which amazed us because we'd already been fighting for five years. So we, we knew that we had another year. Um, that was what we were told. But on New Year's Eve, we woke up that day and it was, it was one of the most traumatic experiences of my life. Um, my family were all sleeping. It was morning and my sister went into my mum's bedroom and she was having a seizure. And she'd never had a seizure before, but she was having a really bad fit. And my sister screamed, my brother-in-law screamed, and we all kind of woke up. And she had this, she just her body just kind of was starting to give up and she, it was this, we called the ambulance and, you know, and uh, you know, if you've ever been around someone who has a seizure, it's a really traumatic experience about, you know, what happens to their, their mouth. And, you know, I was putting my hand in her jaw so that I would try and open it and she kind of bit me. And, um, and it was just like a really, really traumatic experience. And we went to the hospital and, um, and um, we were told that she had had a seizure and that things were looking really bad. And what happened was she eventually kind of like came to, but she had lost her memory. And we had, even though like we were so prepared and like we were so like, like we said, we'd spoken and all this stuff, we still thought we had more time. We thought that she would just kind of gently slip away from us one day with all her faculties. But 
in that moment, she lost all her faculties and she lost her memory and she didn't know where she was and she didn't know who we are and, and it took huge a physical toll on her. And, and I just remember that being like such a trying time for us. And we spent like weeks in the hospital. She eventually started to get back some of her memory, but she was never the same again. And it it did come back. Like she didn't know who we were, but she you could always tell that she couldn't quite converse the way that she could before. So it was around this time that my so my middle sister had gotten married, but my older sister was getting married in, in January, and we had been preparing for this you know huge wedding that my my mum was going to be at. My mum had made the wedding dress, um, all this stuff, and then this happened, and it just took us for such a, a loop. I had also just finished my uni degree. So I always knew that I wanted to be a teacher. My mum wanted me to be a teacher. I was so excited about it. And I had gotten a really good job straight out of uni that started in at the end of January. And it was at the school that I'm currently working at, which is uh, one of the you know the most amazing schools in Adelaide. And we, all these things were about to happen. You know, my sister was going to get married. You know, they were going to go on their honeymoon. I was going to, you know, go start this huge epic journey. And then we, and we were so excited to share it with my mum. And then she was literally removed from the equation. But she was there. And we were having to care for her, which we loved doing. But, like, we couldn't share it with her. And it was just so difficult. It was just so, so difficult. She eventually was able to come home. And um, she got a little bit better. I started my first day of teaching. On like the 26th of January, my sister had gotten married um, and she had seen that. And on my first day of teaching, my mum was able to get out of bed and she was able to walk me to the letterbox, which was incredible because considering how tired she was and how sick she was, she walked me to the letterbox and waved me off to my first day of school. Um, And that was just such a special moment. I'll never forget that. However, on my first day of my career, something that I'd been working towards, I knew I wanted to be a teacher from like the age of 10. Um, I got a call that she had taken another turn and that she had gone to hospital. So I had to get, I had to leave my work, my classroom on the first day. And it's re- if anyone out there is a teacher, your first day is already a complete um, emotional, like, you know, you're so nervous. Um, so she took a really bad turn and I actually had to go to my work that had taken this punt. This is like a really prestigious school. They had taken a chance on a first, a straight out of uni kid with zero experience and given him this amazing job. And I had to go to them and say, look, I need to, I understand if you need to fire me, but I need to be with my family. And they were so supportive. They gave me an entire term off after working half a day. <laughs> I don't, I don't know in many places that would do that. And they brought in someone as a replacement. And then we spent the next few weeks caring for my mum. We eventually were able to take her home in palliative care because we knew that she was going to pass away. And we did that in our in our family home together with my family. And we looked after her for two weeks. And then she eventually passed away. And it was, uh, yeah, it was a uh, it was a tricky time. It was a really, really tricky time. Was it was it especially hard on your dad? Yeah, my dad was just like trying so hard to keep keep everything together. He was um, my mom and my dad just loved each other so much. They were just like the the poster couple for you know uh, um, what it means to be a good good parents and and stuff. And and he was just there was so much happening. You know, there was there's things I haven't even mentioned that were happening when my mom was in hospital during January. I fell really ill, and then they tried to diagnose me with leukemia. And oh man. Yeah, and it was just, and we were just like, what the hell? Like, they thought that I had, you know, I had leukemia and I had to go into for this kind of like bone marrow biopsy and all these things are happening. And we're just like, are you kidding? Can you just give us a break? Like, can the universe just like get stuffed for 10 seconds? 
give, obviously I was fine, thank God, but, you know, there was just so many things happening, and my dad was just like such a rock through all of it. It was just crazy. It was just crazy. It was absolute craziness. And I know I've been speaking about it for a long time, and people might be bored, but it just, it was the most defining moment of my of my life. The, those those couple of months no i mean it's 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 touching to hear and um you know it's you know i it's it's i i love hearing about you know happy like good good families good parents sorry to, i'm giving you this all this like no no no, no. <laughs> no but like but but at the same time like just like the the strength that it took to get through that and like the um the the care that you clearly like have for your parents and that your family has for each other like it's it's like that to me is very heartwarming even though it's tragic because of the tragedy um yeah. so i mean i i i for one uh am, am completely enraptured in in this story um and Thank you know it your 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 mom sounds like an amazing person and, and your your dad sounds like an awesome person and uh <laughs> uh you know you you could talk to me for for ages about it um did yeah. did, did, it, did it did it just sort of like change the the entire dynamic of of your family structure yeah that's a, that's a really good question um it did. So we need to uh, remember that my my family had put their life on hold for five years. In this time, my my sister had gotten married, my middle sister Louisa, and you know her fiance was living overseas. You know they and and she couldn't quite get there because she was looking after my dad. So, you know after mum passed away, we all stayed together for a couple of months because I, obviously I didn't have to go back to work. And but you know our life needed to start get going again. So we had a family. So I'm from a family of five. My two sisters have their partners. I was single at the time. And my two grandparents, my dad's parents, live across the road. So we were a family of nine for so long, living in this house across the road from each other. You know, we were all together. After mum passed away, we went down to eight. And then our lives needed to kick back into gear. So my sister and her husband were able to finally move overseas because he had a business there. My other sister had married someone in Melbourne, a, a great guy in Melbourne, and they went on their honeymoon and eventually moved to Melbourne. And then it went, we went down to a family of four. And then that year, my grandfather passed away. So we went down to a family of three. And then soon after that, my grandmother, um, we had to put her into a nursing home because we couldn't look after her anymore. So we went to, down to a family of two. Now, anyone who knows my family's, you know, my, ha- my dad's house, this was like always a hub of activity all my life. And family and friends, and you know, we had this huge extended family that would always be there, and they were always there for us. But in terms of immediate family, we went from a family of nine to two in the space of a year, and that was huge. Like that was really tricky because all of a sudden, my dad and I are rattling around this huge empty house by ourselves, and I once had wanted to move out, but when I was twenty-one, um, and I and I didn't because I wanted to be there with my dad. But like we were just kind of like these two lost souls, just like wandering around this this big house, and and I'm like trying to get him to finally start my career, and that's taking me away from my dad. And we were it was a really lonely time for us, and because we were spread across the globe, and my dad was still looking after my grandmother and mourning the loss of his wife and his dad, and it was just it, we were also separated. But one of the great things that happened was that the relationship between my dad and I became so good. We never had a bad relationship, but I was always a mummy's boy. I was always a mummy's boy. And um, my dad and I became like such good friends after this. Like we literally stopped becoming father and son and we became father and son as well as best friends. And that was so nice. And we just would spend time together and we would kind of like go and do things together. And 
and you know, I, I, I look back on that time and think that um, we one of the, the the great gifts I got from this was was the relationship with my dad. My dad, we call him Gio. His name's Giovanni. My dad is just one of the greatest men you'll ever meet, and like everyone says, so everyone who meets him, he works in that that deli still that I was talking about, and everyone in Adelaide knows him just as this kind of like just the most smiley, happy guy. And uh, but that wasn't always the case, you know. During this time, it was really tricky, but he's definitely come out the other end, which is which is really nice. Um, you know, all my life, like I always knew, like when I was younger, one of my greatest regrets in life, and this was actually I was talking about this with someone not long ago, when I was really little. I said something to my dad that I've never forgiven myself. So my dad um, is speaks with an accent. You know, he, he he can read English, but he can't write it super well. Um, you know, but he, I always just discounted him. Not always, but when I was younger, I used to discount him as being not as smart as other people because he couldn't use technology or he couldn't, you know, he didn't have academics behind him. And as nev- I never thought he was dumb, but I, I, I knew he wasn't. But I, I one day said to him, um... He wanted to help me with his homework, my homework or something. And I said, oh, why can't you be like the other dads who, who, who can help their kids with their homework? And I, and I ne- and, and uh, you know, like people, my other dads are smarter than you. And he started crying and I've never made my dad cry before. And I've never gotten over that moment that I kind of discounted what he could do. My dad is a maths genius. Like he tried to teach me maths all my life and I can't even do my three times tables. Like I'm that bad. And and you know, he's the most, he's such a handyman and he's like seen the world and he's like the most like knowledgeable and like he knows so much about social dynamics. And I was just such a bastard to him in that moment. So that's, you know, weird story kind of circumnavigating all the way back to when I was younger. But when I was in that time period where we became like really close friends, um, I was able to, it was like the definitive confirmation that I needed that he was this amazing man. And he's he's my my idol. He's someone who I I want to to be like when I'm older, and when I have kids, I want to raise them exactly like him. So you can see how much family means to me. And this was something that's what you know why going out on survival was so tricky because it was just like we have been together for so long in this really intense you know environment, and then to be removed from that was really tricky. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds like the the kind of guy that you you know you want to look up to and you know be like him someday. Oh. Just the most, the most honest, straightforward guy who would never like he would he doesn't even like. Do you know when you at the supermarket and you like grab a grape off the thing? <laughs> oh my god, I did that once, and he was like, "Don't you ever steal someone's grape?" And I was, and he like made the biggest thing about it, and I was like, "That's so true." Like you just, that's not mine. I can't do that. So uh, yeah, he's salt of the earth. Well, it's it's funny, like you you mentioned that uh, story. Uh, it's like it's funny the things that you feel bad about. I guess yeah. like uh, mine was like way even way more benign than yours was. Like I have a memory of being in like a uh, some sort of like uh, like a Kmart or something. I don't know. Uh, and there was like a you know a drink machine. Uh, you know, you put the dollar in, you get a bottle. Um, and I, I asked my dad for a for a drink. I was like, I wanted like an iced tea or something, and he said no. And like, so, but then he went to get uh, one for himself and uh, I was like so mad that he would go get one for himself, but I couldn't have one that yeah. I like snuck in there right after he put the dollar in and I snuck in and I pressed the iced tea. And uh, so the iced tea came out and I was like, ha ha ha, I got, I got the iced tea. And <laughs> cause like he didn't want an iced tea. So he was just like, all right, fine. Like you can have it. And then I spilled it all over the aisle. Like I barely even had any of it. And oh I just felt God. like. 
I am the most like obnoxious bastard in the world. I just stole a drink from my father and I spilled it all over the aisle. I didn't even get to enjoy it. Like uh, how terrible am I? I still remember this to this day. I still That's feel so horrible funny. about it. Uh, it's, uh, but yeah, it's, it's just funny really like, the funny. things that stick with you. Yeah, no, for sure. Like it's those little moments that, and like when I watch a TV show and they include those little moments, I often go like, that surely happened to one of the writers. That's too specific <laughs> yeah. a memory for that. <laughs> yeah. No, like, it, 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 you're so right. And um, there's so many little memories that stick out to me. Um, I guess one of the, the, you know, to put a kind of cap on this story about my, um, you know, my, my mom and stuff like that is that I, when she was, when we were looking after her in hospital, just in the period between New Year's and when she passed away, she was kind of, um, she was in and out of it. So she wasn't really making too much sense in terms of her memory. But I made sure that I sat there with like my phone and like recorded like us talking to her. And one of the things I said to her was, "Mum, can you give me some give me some give me some words of wisdom? Some some something. What did you do to get through? Like I think it was like get through life or something. It was more specific than that, but just some sort of question like that. Like I wanted just this kind of like advice. I wanted her to just tell me this stuff that I could just nourish myself on when I was older." And she turned, looked at me, and I think she was out of it at this point because she didn't really, she kind of like looked through me and she said, go find out for yourself and just kind of like turned her head and kind of like went to sleep. She said it in a much more like nicer way than that, but (laughs) she she meant it in a way that was like, I can't give you the answers, Mm -hmm. go find out for yourself. But then the more I think about it, like what a profound comment like she's asking me i'm asking her mom tell me what was the secret to your success so i can replicate it and even in that state where she didn't really know what was happening whether she knows it or not she gave me something that i always think about and that's go find out for yourself like go out into the world and don't be afraid and go and and have experiences don't say no Figure out what works for you. Figure out what doesn't work for you. And look, I might be reading into it too much, but that line has stuck with me day in and day out since that moment. I just think it's so profound. Like since Survivor, like people think you go on Survivor and then you're like, your life changes because you become a celebrity. That is definitely not the case. If you want to go on Survivor to be a celebrity, please do not do that, right? I went on for the experience, but when you come off, people want you to do things and there are opportunities and things like that. And sometimes you can't be bothered and you don't want to say yes. But I always think of that line, go find out for yourself. And I say yes to these opportunities because I never know, like, what are these opportunities going to mean? And I, and like, you know, ex, you know, when Rob asked me to do the podcast, for example, I was really nervous, but I wanted to find out for myself it was something that I could do. And I think it's just this awesome piece of advice that I've just kind of kept with me. Yeah, I love it. I mean, you know, if there's, if there's a running theme for this podcast, I feel like that's it, you know, like, yeah, um, yeah find out for yourself, go, yeah. go and do it and follow, uh, you know, whatever, whatever you're passionate about or makes you happy, like, uh, yeah. you know, go for and, it. And it was, it was something that like, you know, uh, I I I can I have with I wanted I wanted some advice when I knew that she wouldn't be there. But the irony is that since mum's been gone, and, and this isn't about whether you believe in ghosts or anything like that, but like I do I do people say they feel their presence, and I don't feel her presence in it like a and like oh there's someone staring at me from the corner of the room. That sounds weird, but I there have been a couple of times, and I can share them with you if you want. A couple of times where. I have known that my mum has been there. If people are going to think that I'm this like whacked out, grief stricken <laughs> weirdo who like who's like clutching at straws, whatever. But on day twelve of Survivor, it was the day before I was voted out for the first time. We hadn't eaten in six days. We went to a challenge. It was a challenge where we needed to pull the chicken coop through the barrier. 
I sat out because walking into the challenge, I actually collapsed. I didn't make the air. I don't know why. But I collapsed because I was so tired, right? So I sit out the challenge. And while I'm sitting out the challenge, they say, look, go sit down on the beach over there while we run the uh, walkthroughs. So I'm sitting there on the beach and I was just like, oh. it was mum's, sorry, what makes it, it was my mum's birthday. So my mum celebrated her, well, I celebrated my mum's 60th birthday out on the island. And this actually made the show. Uh, it was the opening of this episode where I go down to the beach and I write her name in the sand and have this little moment because it was she would have been 60 that day. Um, and I was highly emotional. I was emotional because it was her birthday. I was emotional because I hadn't eaten in six days and I knew that I was about to get voted out. I was done. I sat down on the beach and I was like, Mom, happy birthday. Uh, at least I'll get to go home and celebrate with Dad and everyone like this. At least, you know, I'll go home and I won't be here, you know, stuck on the island. <laughs> I'm, I'm clearly getting voted out. And I was just like fiddling with the coral on the beach because it's full of coral. And I picked up this thing and it was this really odd shape. And it was like, it looked like an M, a big M. And I like turned it to the side and it looked like a big E. And it was like a giant E and it was red. And I was like, wow, that's such an odd piece of coral. And I was like, wait, that's mum's like E, Eleanor. I was like, oh, how cute. Like, what a coincidence. And I was just like, I put it in my sock. And then I looked down and next to it was another piece of coral. And I don't know, like... Again, people are going to think I'm such a weirdo. It was a little L. And I was like, what? what is that? And then right next to it was another piece of coral that looked like an L. And then right next to it was a little piece of coral that looked like a Y. Now, my mum's name was Eleonora, but everyone called her Ellie. And she was the only person I knew who spelled it E-L-L-Y. Everyone else spells it E-L-L-I-E. And I looked at it, and the coral spelled out her fucking name. And I grabbed it, started crying, put it in my sock, and I've got it here on my mantelpiece. I will tweet out a picture of this thing for people to see. Uh, it's just these little signs that like that tell me that she's always with me. So sorry, I'm going to stop harping on about it. But like that's um yeah, just such a nice little thing I think. Well, so one of the things that you uh, you talked about was that you uh, you would always wanted to be a teacher, and that's yeah. I, I talked to to Jordan uh, Parhar about yes, that yes, on yes. Uh, on his episode. Uh, so can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, so like I always knew I wanted to be a teacher. I, I, actually, when I was little, I wanted to be a zookeeper, and then I wanted to be a chef. But I reckon by about year seven, uh, I knew that I wanted to be a teacher, which is really weird because I teach students all the time, and many of them don't know what they want to do, and that's a very common thing. So I don't know what it was, but I just knew that I wanted to be there, transmitting knowledge, talking about English, which is my favorite subject. So I would like, as a kid, I would always just like watch my teachers and be like, yep, okay, won't do that. Or like, oh, I'll do that. And I would take notes on them. Like, how weird is that? (laughs) Like, I would take notes about things that I would do or not do one day when I became a teacher. And it was really, many of them I actually do now. So, um, but yeah, I always knew that I wanted to be a teacher. Um, When I was little, my sister, my older sister would, um, she would take me to the backyard and would turn the wheelbarrow over and it would be like a desk. And then, like, I was the student and she was the teacher and she would, like, you know, would play, like, you know, when we were really little, she'd, like, boss me around. But I was like, "Mm, this just doesn't feel right, me being the student. And, like, just in that moment, I was like, no, I want to be the one standing up and and giving instructions. But it just felt like it's just such a big part of my personality that that I I couldn't imagine myself doing anything else. I really couldn't. And people say, oh, you go on Survivor, like, do you want to, like, get into the media? I'm like, hell no. Like, I want to be in the classroom to the day I die. Like... It's just such a big part of my personality. Um, I, my first day, I, I did work experience when I was in year 11. I did work experience at a little primary school um, down the road from where I live now. And this was, my, this was literally my first experience being in front of a classroom. And it was a year five class and I was so nervous and I was just kind of like taking them for a little activity. And I'm standing there and I'm talking, okay, guys, today we're going to blah, blah, blah. And this one kid just started laughing. 
I was like, Nick, ignore it. Keep, keep going. Then the next kid started laughing. I was like, Nick, just steer the course. Kids are kids. Then the next kid started laughing. The next kid. And then all of a sudden, the whole class was laughing. And I was like, guys, uh, what's happening? Like, and in this moment, I was like, well, that teaching career lasted about four minutes. And then this little, sweet little girl kind of leans in. She's like, sorry, Mr. I Dancer. You're fly is down <laughs> and my fly was down so far you could see my bright red jocks and i was just like <laughs> well i'm destined to not be a teacher <laughs> but i kind of pushed through that little moment and um yeah i, I definitely stuck with it and it was definitely uh, something that i i know i'll do forever it's like straight out of a nightmare it was an absolute nightmare in that moment i was like do i just jump off the balcony like cause we're on the second floor <laughs> just like end it now but I think I made some joke like, you know, oh, later on we'll do maths. We'll, we'll work out the ratio of people who've got red underwear to blue underwear. And then the kids laughed and forgot about it and I zipped it up. And I was like, okay, I can do this. I can do this. Yeah. Uh, you um, you also mentioned your um, uh, wife or fiance. Uh, she's now my wife. Yeah. I, uh, I got married uh, earlier this year. When I was at, when I was in uni, on my first day of uni, I had, you know, had finished school, you know, this thing was happening with my mum and I was like, okay, I'm going to start uni. I'm going to be so focused. I'm going to, and co- it's not like college in America. That's another big difference. You, you don't go and stay there. It's just like in the city and you kind of go home. Um, and, you know, I'm going to stay, stay so focused and nothing is going to break my focus. I'm going to do this for my mum. I'm going to do this for me. I'm going to become a teacher. Yeah. Awesome. Focus. Walk in on my first day, this amazingly good looking blonde girl was sitting right next to me and I was like well that's done <laughs> I'm not going to be out of focus anymore and that and that was uh, her name was Christine and we became really good friends uh, with a, a, another friend of ours Bianca we was just this little three three at uni and we became really really good friends for years and um, it wasn't until seven years later that I actually worked up the courage and we actually uh started dating so anyone out there who says you know can't be friends first or you get friend zoned i am proof that you definitely (laughs) can claw claw your way out of the friend zone and put a ring on it but what what finally uh made you go over the edge uh so we were on a holiday in greece a bunch of us had gone and did like a a tour like a big party holiday and we were we were in greece one night and in uh in eos uh partying and um you know the old game of truth and dare came out and that (laughs) And, uh, and a love story was born over cheap wine and truth or death. <laughs> <laughs> so romantic. So romantic. But yeah, so we uh, we got together and we've, yeah, we've been together ever since we got married um, early this year. We actually postponed our wedding so I could go on Survivor. And I don't know many people who would, um, many girls who would willingly let that happen. <laughs> so she yeah. was, you, you couldn't find a more supportive person so excited for me to go on Survivor. And, you know, anyone whose partners are going to go on Survivor, you think that the hard part is just them when they're out on the island. It's not. When you come back, everyone wants a piece of you. You know, you know um, you're watching the shows, you're, you're doing podcasts, all this stuff. It's the aftermath, which is really tricky because you not only were you physically removed for a couple of months, but you're actually emotionally and mentally removed for much longer than that. I would say for like a good year from the moment you leave until you come back. Yeah, I mean, Aubrey talked about that a little bit. Yes, um, yes, she did. Yes. Yeah, and and like how, I mean, like you, you must come back and then, you know, you went through this very intense experience and she didn't. And that's, yeah. you know, that's bound to cause some kind of separation, whether you want to or not. And you have to like bridge that gap again. 
Yeah, like I hear survivors say like, oh, and they're like, my family just didn't understand. And and I get that. But like, that was never the case with me. Like my family, we've always been huge survivor fans. They always understood. They were always very accommodating. It's just that you try and make time. You know, I, I know people who went out the island and didn't work again for another year when they got back. I got home from Jury Villa and two days later I was back full time in the classroom teaching senior English. You know, I was like a complete a mess in mentally, but I had that time in the Drew Villa to get together. So I just dove straight back into work. So I had full-time work. I had just gone through this experience and trying to reconnect with my family. And then the promos come out and everyone knows who you are. And it was just a really tricky time. And there's just no way I wouldn't have, I would have been able to get through it without Christine. She was an absolute superstar and, and still is like, she's a survivor widow. She's now a podcast <laughs> widow. And, um, and yeah, I'm just eternally grateful. I just, I just love her so much. She, she just, um, yeah, I got a good one, Taryn. That's good, good to hear. Uh, so, tell, tell me about the uh, the podcast. How did how did that come about? Yeah. So, in terms of like my survivor fandom, I have been like many people who who listen to the podcast. I've been there since day one. You know, season one, Borneo, and all that. And it's just been survivors. Just been a part of my life. Like it's just been a huge huge part of my life ever since it first started. I, I remember when I was younger, I would, um, <laughs> I remember I actually cut, uh, when Tina won season two, there was an article in the local paper. I don't know why. And I cut it out and I put it on my fridge and I said, mom, one day I'm going to win survivor. And she was like, that's good. That's good, darling. Like one day you will, but can you get this thing off my fridge? <laughs> <laughs> and it's just been this part of my life ever since. And, um, I was completely obsessed. I used to make my, my 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 friends at school play Survivor challenges and things, and everyone hated it. Um, and when I was when I was like eighteen, I was like, when I have my twenty first, it's going to be a Survivor themed twenty first. And I remember my cousins being like, Survivor won't even be on the air by then, and <laughs> if it if it is, you won't even like it then. And I'm like, no, I promise I will. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Twenty one rolls around. I have this huge epic Survivor themed twenty first. Um, where like everyone got a torch and that was their invitation. There was stuff written on it. There was games. We ate eyeballs and, you know, voting booths and all this stuff, which is kind of like spooky considering I went on the show. But it's just always been such a big part of my life. But in that time when mum was really sick, it would have been the beginning of 2010. And just before that is when I found the podcast. It was around that time, I think, because I remember it was when Heroes Villains came out. I think it was, yeah, I think it was, that was the same time that I found the podcast. And I remember being, you know, I was like, what's this whole Twitter malarkey? And I like went and looked looked at what Twitter was. And I was like, well, who do I want to follow on Twitter? And I was like, well, obviously I'll follow Survivors. So the first person I typed in was Rob, Rob Sestanino, found his Twitter. And he had just tweeted this link out saying that he's starting a website. And I was like, oh, what's this? And I clicked on it. And it took me to this website. And it was the very first incarnation of Rob as a podcast. <laughs> I'm not sure if anyone remembers. I don't know if you remember it. Um, I've, in all the times I've spoken to Rob, I keep forgetting to bring this up, but it wasn't about Survivor. And I don't know if anyone knows that or if I'm actually spilling the tea here, but like his first website wasn't about Survivor. It was like a kind of blog thing, kind of like the way that Perez Hilton used to be set out, where it was like articles and scroll through. And it was about baseball and, a, um, and his logo was, I think it was like a pencil and it was like a yellow lined paper background. And I was like, what is this? Like, and I was looking at the, no one had commented on anything. I literally must have been on it the day that he launched it or like the week that he launched it. And I remember commenting on one of the posts about baseball. I know nothing about baseball. I was like, hey, Rob, cool website. Will you ever talk about Survivor? And I got a response and he said, 
maybe not sure at this point or or something like that. And I, Taryn, would like to, and I haven't verified this with Rob, so maybe I need to fact check this first, see if he has any recollection of this. But I can say that I was the first person to mention Survivor on Rob Has a Podcast. (laughs) There you go. So I think that's pretty cool. So I literally have been listening from the very beginning. The first round of interviews he did, you know, I remember like one of my favorite ones was one he did with Aaron Lobdell. Uh, like, and I just, it just literally became a part of my routine like it has become for so many people. And in the last couple of years, I'd say when I finally moved out of home um, and I moved into a place with my mates, I was looking for something that would kind of like, um, I could listen to while I was um, recording, uh, while I was moving and stuff like that. And that's when like my, my survivor, I, I went through this, like, I've always been a huge obsessed fan, but I went through like a two year period where I was like night and day listening to like 10 hours of podcasts. And it was around that time and the evolution of strategy had just come in. And I started a rewatch and, you know, I became so obsessed with the podcast that everyone knew that when they came to my house, it would be on in the background. And that was just my life. And then when Survivor announced that they were going to do it, they were going to do an Australian one. I started the process I, w- I wasn't a patron, but I was about to become a patron. But then I was like, no, I can't be on the patron thing. People will see me. I'm about to go on the show. So I didn't do that. But um, when I came back, the, like the literally the first day that I got back from Survivor, I emailed Rob. And we had emailed back and forth about a couple of things before, you know, nothing too major. But I emailed back and forth. I was like, hey, Rob, like I'm going to be on the season. I'm not going to give you any spoilers, but just wanted to let you hope you do some coverage of it. You know, um, huge, huge fan. And he may have remembered me. I'm not quite sure. Probably not. But uh, yeah, from then, like we just kind of stayed in touch. And then eventually, um, Stephen actually, I think, was the one who suggested it. And Stephen's like, no offense to Rob, Stephen's my all time favorite, <laughs> favorite survivor, followed closely by, by Rob and Parvati and Sandra. But um, um, Stephen has always been my number one. And the fact that he and I were conversing during the show was just like complete wish fulfillment that not only had I been on Survivor and had this epic experience that he was speaking to me, and then he suggested that I take over for the Noah, uh, for Australia Survivor. Rob asked to speak one day, and yeah, the rest is history. Wow, that's awesome. It's pretty, cra- it's pretty crazy like how long I've been attached to the website to now be contributing. <laughs> yeah. Well, like what was your reaction when you, when, uh, when he suggested that? I nearly shit my pants. Like <laughs> just the fact that someone would think that much of me to actually like take over a part of the website. And you know, you, you know, the same thing, just that feeling of like, it's just, it's like a trust thing. Like I feel like there was a trust that I would do, do it justice. And I hope I have like, um, the feedback's been good, but, you know, Rob's such a professional that you kind of, you know, you hope that you, you can you can do it proud. But um, yeah, I was I was so excited, and I said yes. I was just like, yes, of course. Like, I would love to do that. Um, I don't know. I think people who I played with expected me to just come back and be again so obsessed with Survivor and seek out all these Survivor opportunities. I've not sought out any. They have found me, and I'm very grateful that they have. But. It, it was not something that I was going to pursue had Rob not come to me. And then he asked if I would do New Zealand Survivor, and I just said yes because um, I felt like it was a package deal. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, a great, great sir, uh, Australian Survivor season to start uh, covering because um, yeah, this season oh, was amazing. Sure. So much better than mine. <laughs> yeah, this must have been so much fun to cover. It was. And, like, I'm so grateful. Like, I've recorded my last podcast for, for, for Australian Survivor the other day, and I wrapped up the... Uh, the, the the microphone I was just like that's been I think I did forty hours now that's nothing to you you're like <laughs> you're like you're like yeah add a couple more zeros on that one buddy. but 
But for someone who's never done, I've never done anything like this to just kind of be thrown in like many of us are. But um, it was just really, it was hard. I don't know how Rob did it when he had a full-time job. Um, but um, the feedback has been good. The support, like the fact that so many people listen. And I love like when I see people in the street and like who actually come up to me and they're like, People come up and say, oh, you're from Survivor and stuff like that. And that's always lovely, whatever. But they, they're fans of Survivor. I like when people come up and they're like, I love the podcast. That means that they're fans of the podcast, something that I've created. And that's that's really nice. Yeah, that's awesome. That's It's always, uh, it's, a, it's a great thing. You know, and even like for me, when it, when it changed from like, oh, I love you on the podcast to like, oh, I love the Taryn yes. show. It was like, yes. uh, oh, man, like uh, it is a, a bit of a different uh, feeling. It, it is nice. Can I say that this idea for this this show that you're doing is such a good idea because I I don't know what podcasts really exist outside the realm of have to be honest. And I, and I love hearing people's stories. And I, I'm so grateful for you that you've brought people these stories. I'm not trying to suck kneecaps or anything, but you've done such a good job. And, and I, I like, I'm, I'm punching my way through all of them because hearing people, everyone's got this unique story. And when you asked me to come on, I said to Christine, I was like, I don't have a story. What's my story? And she's like, well, everyone's got a story. And it's so true. And you, you get that out of people. So it's a great job. And thank you so much. Oh, thank you for coming on. I mean, you had you had a beautiful story. Uh, like, uh, you know, it, it might be because I'm incredibly sleep deprived at the moment, but I was like, uh, <laughs> I was like in tears here. Like, uh, <laughs> guys, if you want, before you listen to the podcast, you just like, you know, don't sleep for a couple of hours, and then it will actually be hard hitting. Everyone else is like, what is this guy? What is this guy? What is this guy rambling on about? <laughs> yeah this is gonna this is gonna be a thing where it's like uh man that was such a great podcast and then like i go to sleep and i listen like back to it and i edit it and i'm like oh my god what he this was terrible uh, what was he even saying I, uh, wh- wh- how did i think this was good um, guys if you're, if you're hearing this it means it's made it through the filter and it was actually okay so uh, if if it doesn't make it through the filter tara and i apologize feel yes, free to scrap it i don't mind if if you've somehow found this uh <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it was this was this was great. This was amazing. Uh, I really enjoyed this. Um, I, I feel like I, I could talk to you for for even longer, but uh, I, yeah. I I think uh, you know. I think we've I, done I, it. Yeah, I think I think we're I think we're good. I think we're solid. I, I really this this is great. Thank you so much. No worries. Thank you for for having me. And like, if I'm sure that the story resonates with a few people out there. Like, you know, I'd love for you to kind of guys to hit me up and 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 let me know how your story. So you know like Insta, Twitter, whatever, just kind of hit me up and let's, let's have a chat because I know how much what I spoke about means to me and it's cool when, when, when it resonates with other people. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's again, like one of the the best things about doing this show is like, you know, I I released that, that Brent podcast last week and he talks about his addiction and, uh, there were so many people that that reached out because addiction touches so many people in in various different ways. Like whether it affected whether whether you had an addiction or somebody that you yeah. knew or cared about had an addiction. Like um, there were so many people that were like, you know, like I never could understand it until I heard Brent describe it and and like it finally clicked for me like oh my god this is what this person was going through and all, yeah. all kinds of stuff like that and uh you know it was even, so good it was so yeah, good to, to, to even be like a facilitator of that is just uh an, an awesome experience so uh you know if 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 this if this relates to you in any way if this touches you in any way uh as nick said uh re- reach out and um let, let us know it, it really does mean a lot yeah excellent so thank you for giving me the platform taryn but this is, I think, the last time people will hear my voice on the podcast for a while uh, on RHAP, on the RHAP network. I'm, 
I think I'm, I'm ready to kind of take a break. And this was a really, really, really nice way to, to, to end it. So thank you. you. It's like a little bit of closure, a bit of therapy as well. Free therapy. <laughs> yeah, I, I have had people be like, uh, Taryn, you should be a therapist. Yeah. Uh, little did they know that was my childhood dream <laughs> before I became oh, really? a video producer. Yeah. Uh, You've so, done uh, both then. That's wicked. You've been able yeah, to put the two together. <laughs> All right, well, um, the next but, emotional upheaval I have, I'll be speed dialing you straight away. <laughs> Sounds good. Um, <laughs> so how, can, uh, how can people find you? And uh, like if they want to you know, go back and watch Australian Survivor, if they missed it, how can they find the, uh, the coverage? Uh, yeah, cool. So you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Nick Idanza. Facebook, I kind of keep private simply because I don't want students to find my Facebook. So sorry <laughs> if I don't add you on, on Facebook. But um, Instagram and Twitter, I'm like super active. Um, so yeah, it's at Nick Idanza. People always forget Idanza is I A D A N Z A. So, um, yeah, like send me a message, send me, tweet me. I'll, I'll try, if I remember, I'll tweet out the pictures of those things so that people can see I'm not just some raving lunatic. <laughs> um, but in terms of watching Australian Survivor, there are links out there. I know Daily Motion has them. If you're in the, the patron group, there's the, uh, there's the links there. Um, yeah, season one was, you know, the show was trying to find its feet. Um, and there's definitely parts that drag. But uh, in the like after I was voted out, of course, Tara. <laughs> but but no, there's definitely some really good stuff there, like the pre-merge and the actual merge itself. Like I think is really good stuff. Um, it does take a little bit of a dip, but the finale. I still say the finale of season one, uh, for all of season one's faults and the fact that there was not a ton of gameplay, the finale of season one is one of the best episodes of Survivor I've ever seen, and I can I say that. I don't think that's biased because I wasn't, I was barely in it, but, um, yeah, I think that's, it was a really good, good, um, uh, good ending. And the season two was absolutely brilliant. So if you haven't checked it out, it's a big time commitment, but, but, but definitely do it. And let me know what you what you what you think of my um of my time out there. Yeah, well, I I think uh you know when we first started talking, I think one of the first things I told you was like, yeah, you know, I, I watched uh, the first season, but I I kind of stopped after you uh you got <laughs> you got voted. <laughs> That's what, a, a few people say that they're like, we watched the full season until you voted out, and then from then on, we stopped watching the actual show and watched the jury villa videos until the finale, <laughs> and then watched that. And I'm like, that's actually a really cool way to watch it because it's just like all Nick all the time. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! All right, so you can uh, you can find this podcast on iTunes, uh, the Taryn Show. Uh, go ahead, go ahead and subscribe. Uh, it, that's it's great if you do. Um, you know, I I feel like this this kind of podcast in particular it uh, lends well to subscribing because there's going to be people that you don't recognize. Yeah. You, like uh, you, I I bet there's a lot of people listening to this podcast. If you took a chance on this guy that you've never heard of uh, from Australia because you don't watch Australian Survivor, uh, I think you probably really enjoyed this one, and uh, maybe you wouldn't have even bothered if you hadn't been subscribed. So uh, yeah, you gotta you gotta make that subscription. That's uh, that's what that's what you gotta do. Um, but uh, you know, I, this this has been great. Um, you can find us on robhasawebsite.com. You can find me on Twitter at Armstrong Taren. Uh, and uh, yeah, I think that's I think that's all we've got for you. I uh, can't wait to bring you the next interview, and I'll see you then. Thanks so much, Taren. See you later, guys. Taren's asking questions. Looking deeper, that's what it's all about. It's the Terrence Show. 
上一。